Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. All right, so I get to say the passage today, so if you could please stand. And it, we're going to be reading out of Romans 12. Um, verses 3 to 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Andrew. Good morning. Um, before I get, um, before I get into my sermon, uh, just a few bits of like, kind of family news or staff news. Um, John uh, Fouché is going to be taking a, like an unpaid leave of absence in, from, from last week until November 6th, and um, that's because his, his brother passed away um, a little over a month ago now, and um, he is res- responsible for handling his brother's estate, and that is, and resolving his brother's business, and I think is a bit overwhelmed from the last year and a half of caring for his brother and kind of shepherding his brother through his through his death, really, and um, and it, it, people have told me this before. I haven't been through it, but like when you have to do that, it's like having another job. And so he is just taking a step back from his staff duties. He's still going to be serving, like leading a small group. He's still going to be um, serving as an active elder. He'll still be around here on Sundays. But um, just a point of information that he's going to be taking a leave of absence for a few months. He'll be back on November sixth. On November thirteenth, I'll be stepping away for a month or a month and a half, because I'm going to have uh, heart surgery. So when the year we started the church, um, 2006, we started in October. In April of that year, I had been lightheaded and short of breath for a little while. And I, um, I avoided going to the doctor for several months and then went, and the doctor said, um, listen to my heart, sent me to a cardiologist. The cardiologist said, you have a bicuspid aortic valve that is severely regurgitating and needs to be replaced and I was just happy they'd figured it out right away. And so I was like, okay, like now? And uh, she was like, well, you're going to have to talk to the surgeon for that. And I went, to, I went to my car, called my wife, told her what she said. My wife later said, I paused because I thought you were kidding. And then I realized you couldn't make up that stuff if you wanted to. And, um, and I spent that summer um, telling God, hey, if you don't want me to plant a church, you, don't, you can just tell me. You don't have to kill me. Like, I'm fine. I don't need this, you know? And... Uh, and so, but had the surgery, it was fine, but the way they did it, I knew within, within 20 years or so I was going to have to do it again. It's been 17 years, I've gotten my money's worth. This valve has served me well, but a couple weeks ago, they were like, hey, we got we to gotta go in there. And it's a little bit more extensive than it was the last time. Um, and my anxiety level about this on a scale of 1 to 10, when we walked out of the doctor a couple weeks ago, I told Bobby Joe, and she agreed with me, I'm like, my anxiety level on a scale of 1 to 10 is probably a 2. Like, I'm really not anxious about it. They've done it before. It's something catastrophic would have to happen for it to go badly. Um, they do it all the time. Uh, my irritation level with it is about an eight because my lasting impression of when they did this 17 years ago was um, that your body is not made to be chopped open and dug around in, and it doesn't like that at all, and your body will spend a few months telling you how much it didn't like getting chopped open and dug around in. So that'll be November 13th. 
Um, I will be around, but not like here <laughs> um, for probably a month or six weeks or something like that. So I've told a few people about that and just wanted to, to put it out there. Okay, Romans chapter 12, um, continuing our series in Romans. If you can put that first verse up, and let me just go through this verse, and then I'm going to dig into this and ask you guys some questions. But just break this first verse down a little bit. Paul starts, for by the grace given to me, and then he says, I say to you not to think more highly of himself. I think that for by the grace given to me is like, like a defense mechanism against Paul knowing I'm about to tell people not to think more highly of themselves than they ought to. And that, like my natural response might be, well, who are you to tell me how to think about myself? Maybe you not to not think so highly about yourself that you think you can tell me how I think about myself. And so he says, by the grace given me, like let's just calm down. Like this is what I feel like God has told me to tell you. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, uh, but with sober judgment. And the, word, the wording for not, not more highly than you ought to think, someone translated it literally not to super think about yourself. Um, and as I go through this, and really just sitting there like thinking, I think super thinking about ourselves is probably an accurate description of what our culture is doing right now when it comes to like ourself. We super think about ourselves. And so he says, not more highly than you ought. And there's a balance in that. So he's not saying you shouldn't think of yourself highly. He actually implies that you should think of yourself highly, but not more highly than you ought to. Um, and, and he doesn't say, like, just think about yourself really lowly, which is, you know, we tend to go to those extremes. And there's a whole thing of, um, you read about sometimes called worm theology, like that we should just think of ourselves as worms. It's living at the end of Romans 7, wretched man that I am, and just stopping there. <laughs> um, there's a song by, a hymn by Isaac Watts from like the 1600s, and I think occasionally we still sing this. It's the, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. But the first verse of it is, alas, and did my Savior bleed and did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And, and in modern times, we've actually changed the lyric, but that was the original lyric, and there's the, kind of this whole line of thinking that for some people it feels good to feel bad, and that if we're beating ourselves up a lot, then God must be happy with us. Um, and he, so he's not saying that. And he says, but think with sober judgment, and so that is like to think of yourself with, with rigorous accuracy. Um, completely in touch with reality, and then according to each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, which that kind of sounds like he's given me a measure of faith, and so I should think about myself one way, and he's given you a measure of faith, and you should think about yourself that way. But the more I read commentaries on that, they agreed that it's like there's a standard of faith he's given us, and we should think about ourselves according to the standard of faith that he's given us, which is the gospel in Romans 1 through 11. And, um, and so our faith dictates how we see ourselves and how we think about ourselves. We've used language of like, you see yourself through the lens of what the gospel tells you is true. And this whole section of Romans is kind of like that. Um, and so, so after the first eight chapters, really 11 chapters, um, he's going to say, in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, we should see ourselves and treat ourselves in this way. And next week, it's going to be in light of the gospel, we should see our friends and loved ones and treat them this way. And the week after that, it's going to be we should see and treat our enemies in this way. And the week after that, it's going to be we should see and treat the authorities in our world this way. And it fits with the passage that Ken preached last week, um, that after, you, after 11 chapters of gospel, like the reasonable service, the natural response is to present your bodies a living sacrifice to the Lord, which is just to trust him completely because he's good, and you can, and that's what makes sense, and so to surrender your will to his completely. And it makes sense that Paul would start with how we see ourselves, because next to how we see God, how we see ourselves is probably most going to impact how we move out into the world and how we live our lives. Now, another part of the passage from last week um, was this, Romans, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so there's an assumption that Paul makes that once you've accepted who Jesus is and um, his work on your behalf, then it is going to change, it's going to change you. 
Like it just naturally is going to change you and it's going to be, you'll be different than you were before you believed in who Jesus was and what Jesus has done on your behalf. So, so once you believe that Jesus was divine, that Jesus came from heaven to earth because of the love of, of our Father God for us, that he died on our sins to fix a problem that we were incapable of fixing and he rose from the dead um, to show us that he's conquered sin and death and, and is giving us the power to do that. And, and once the truths of Roman 8 become Romans 8, like there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the same spirit that raised him from the dead, dead is alive in us. And we're adopted into the family of God. And nothing can undo this. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Then we're going to see ourselves differently than we did before we accepted that as true. So, so, the, so end up with what's that difference? How does the world coach us to think about ourselves and what does God tell us is true about ourselves? And, and so let me just, I've asked a handful of people this question over the past few weeks, this first question. And so I'm just going to throw this out there. How does our world coach us to think about ourselves? Because when I have this conversation with people, I'm like, there's, there's a difference between how the world teaches us to think about ourselves and what the Bible says is true about ourselves. People are like, oh yeah, there is. Uh, so what are some things that the world coaches us to think about ourselves? Hmm. We're not good enough. You deserve everything. We think we're better than what we really are, which is interesting because you're not good enough and we think we're better than what we really are. Is, but, it, but I get both of them. Oof, we're the arbiters of truth. Yeah. We know it all. Work hard and you'll succeed. Mm. You always need more. Anybody else? Yeah, you can do it. One of the things I thought about is just, if you can dream it, you can do it. That's not always true. Um, you know, <laughs> like, I never really wanted to be an NBA basketball player. Had I dreamed that, I still wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, but you are kind of raised with that. You can do anything you want to do. But it's not the worst thing to think, I guess, but like... That's not really true. Some of our slogans, you deserve, you deserve a break today. Um, there's a lot of language about what we deserve. Um, have it, have it your way. Um, even just do it. Kind of impulsively, if you want to do it, just do it. Um, I think in our immediate moment, um, the idea that in ways that we don't even realize, in some ways we do and some we don't, that our self-expression is like our highest value and should not be restricted in any way, that whatever's inside of us has to come out of us, and there's an assumption in that, that whatever's inside of us is valid and good and so it, it can't be restricted. I mean, people talk about us being a, a, a radically individualistic society, which is super thinking about ourselves. And it's the air we breathe to such an extent that I don't even think um, we can realize it. One conversation got to the, um, and someone said this, like, that if you buy this, you'll be happy. Like, that's a message that's given us. But implicit in that is like the highest good is your happiness. And that's a message we hear over and over again that's driven, I guess, by our economy. Um, and the point of your life is for you to be happy. Well, underlying that is kind of, or the point of your life is to buy this stuff so I can be happy, you know? <laughs> um, I think about everything that's going on with gender and, and sexuality, but with specifically with the issue of gender right now, 
is like whatever I feel, again, needs to be validated. And this whatever I feel is who I am. And it's all from the inside. Um, I think even about our phones where we are in our own tailored little world. And you, know, you see it all the time that we interact less with each other because we've got this tailored world that we can, we can dive into at any time that we want to. Um, one person said that our world kind of coaches us into thinking we're little gods, and it all revolves around us. And, and, I, and one of the things I've thought is you don't, you don't just have the right to express yourself, but you have the need to express yourself, and anyone who denies that right or that need is being oppressive and abusive towards you. Um, and, and then I thought, like, where does, that, where does that lead to? And I think it leads to us, like, could you say that our culture has an overly sensitive ego? Is that fair to say, or is that too much? Um, I think we have an inability to handle conflict because of it. I think the whole, and, the, and it's like things have backed off of this, I think, but I'm not sure. But it was 10 years ago where it was the debate, and I think it really started at Yale, about safe spaces and trigger warnings. Um, and now there's a backlash against that to where, um, where a number of universities are adopting a freedom of expression statement championed by the University of Chicago that's basically saying, no, we, are, we exist to have a healthy debate about things, and that might hurt your feelings, and that's going to have to be okay. Um, but I think it led to that. Um, par participation trophies. I mean, they've been around for a long time. I feel like I've dialed way back in my mention of participation trophies, right? Can you get an amen on that? I mean, if you've been around here a minute, I used to talk about them a lot. My favorite participation trophy stories, I uh, coached my second son Matthew's team for, I don't know, three, four, five years, and I never gave out participation trophies. I would give them a certificate where I wrote something individual about the, the kid, which I thought was better. But one of the moms didn't. And so our last team party, when we were done as a team, and she's now a district court judge in Raleigh, <laughs> and uh, she brought a box of participation trophies and handed them out herself. <laughs> I still felt like that was a win for me. And my second favorite story is I ran a marathon probably five years ago now, and it was hard, man. And I got to the end of it, and I, my, I was tired. My form was bad. I cramped up. I was walking every, I was stretching every quarter mile. So I got to the end of it, turned this corner, and it's the finish line. And then they put this, they put this like medallion thing on you. And I might have cried. I mean, I was, it was a long couple of hours. And I told that story a couple weeks later in church, and Katie Pritchett came up to me afterwards. And she's like, would you say that was a participation trophy, Jeff? <laughs> I said, no, Katie. I'd say I ran 26.2 miles. And you deserve more than a medal. <laughs> uh, yeah, so participation trophies, it feels like we're desperately trying to tell people that they're good or that we're good. And um, what's that line, the lady doth protest too much? <laughs> like, because we know there's something wrong, and we don't know what to do about it. Um, you know, and maybe that's why we compare ourselves to each other all the time, and the affirmation-condemnation game, and the more we play that game, the more we're conforming to the world. I think it's really, really different. There's some things that are similar, and not all of that's bad, but some things that are similar, but it's really different than what the Bible tells us is true about ourselves. So to be rigorously accurate, completely in touch with reality. Let me start in Genesis and just throw a few verses out. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. And this is, we take this so for granted, it is an astounding, just an historically an astounding assertion to make that we are made in the image of God. A couple of years ago, I don't know why I was doing this, but got into like origin stories and different stories from that time and like what their theories about that we were, um, that human beings were made to be slaves to the gods or that we were the result of some, we were like afterbirth in one of the stories, like it's crazy. And then here comes this story where we are made in the image of God. And no other story says that about human beings. And it's the foundation of our concept of human rights. 
but what we're losing, but, but people don't valid, like people don't think the Bible's valid anymore, but this is the only reason that human rights is a thing. I mean, it's in our um, Declaration of Independence, right? And so there's an irony that in a culture where we're telling people more and more how important they are, we're losing the basis for that. And that's going to break at some point. Um, it's like we're living on the fumes of, of that when now the base level assumption is that we are the, the end result of a series of random mutations. And we just happen to be here. But we have this dignity. Like it doesn't make sense without this. Um, there's a great... I find these from time to time, and this, I read this one this week. It's an article, and I put this out in the weekly. Um, I put a couple links in the weekly. And this, it's, the article is called, We Are Repaganizing. And the author is Louise Perry. She's British. Um, I, I'd heard about her for a book she wrote a couple years ago, and she's, kinda, she's fascinating, in large part because she's not a Christian. Like, she's considered it, and she's like, I don't know. Um, but she sees the impact of it. So in this article, she writes, the supremely strange thing about Christianity in anthropological terms is that it takes a topsy-turvy attitude towards weakness and strength. To put it crudely, most cultures look at the powerful and the wealthy and assume that they must be doing something right to have attained such might. The poor are poor because of some failing of their own, well, whether in this life or the last. The smallness and feebleness of women and children is a sign they must be commanded by men. The suffering of slaves is not an argument against slavery, but an argument against allowing oneself to be enslaved. Most cultures perfectly logically glorify warriors and kings, not those at the bottom of the heap. But Christianity takes a perverse attitude towards status and puts that perversity at the heart of the theology. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong is a baffling and alarming claim to anyone from a society untouched by the strangeness of the Jesus movement. Like she gets herself outside of it to see the only reason we believe that is because what a Judeo-Christian worldview has told us. And we don't really believe that anymore, but we're still holding on um, to these things. And it, and it comes from this, that everyone, weak or strong, rich or poor, is made in the image of God, and that's what gives us dignity. She says, built into the fabric of the religion was a love for the weak that could not help but slowly, falteringly work against the strong. She, and I think she considers herself some version of feminist, but she said, modern secular feminists, familiar only with a caricature of Puritanism, presented in The Handmaid's Tale, wholly underestimate the emancipatory, a lot of big words, emancipatory effect that Christianity had on women. Uh, she says, feminine, feminine, <laughs> feminism is not opposed to Christianity. It is Christianity's descendant. Um, she cites this, this Irish writer who uses the image of a necklace in describing the nature of moral systems. And so they may have beads on the necklace, discrete ideas that feminism is a good thing or that slavery is wrong, but all the beads are threaded together on a string. And the string in this case is, is this, that all human beings are made in the image of God and have inherent dignity. said so you can't pick up the individual bead without lifting the whole necklace. You don't get to pick and choose. Uh, she cites another author named Tom Holland, who I also don't think is a Christian, but wrote a book called Dominion about about like a big book about the impact that Christianity has had on Western culture over 2,000 years. And he writes, How common in antiquity are the fundamental tenets of humanism, that humans, no matter their sex, their place of origin, their class, are all of equal value, and that those who walk in darkness must be brought into the light? Not common at all, I would say. Indeed, I would go so far as to say that their fusion was pretty much a one-off. And what he means is a one-off in Christianity. It's the only one that said it. Um, in other words, secular humanism is just Christianity with nothing upstairs. Again, not, a, not Christian people getting it. Uh, it's astounding. Um, there's one more line she has. Here's the problem for the feminists busy sawing at the branch on which they sit. <laughs> that makes sense? Like, um, we're cutting out the assertions underneath it. It's an astounding thing for us to believe that we're made in the image of God. Rome, or Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. When I contemplate you, God, who am I? What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, that's a way of thinking of yourself highly, but only thinking of yourself highly in light of how you think about God. 
It's such a fundamental difference between how the attitude of entitlement that we see in our culture and, and the gratitude that, that the biblical understanding brings, that we understand ourselves in light of who God is and what God has done for us. Psalm 139, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I'll praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You did it. And so I'll praise you, but it will elevate my understanding of who I am because of the value you place on me. Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship. That word in Greek is poema. It's a masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, you can say not to super think of yourself, but like, can you think of yourself any higher than those verses tell you to think about yourself? You really can't. And so our culture gets right that we have dignity, you know, but our culture gets wrong that our dignity comes from God and not from ourselves. And our culture is teaching us not to be grateful to God for who we are, but just to be grateful to ourselves for who we are. And that's like a, just a huge disconnect that has massive implications. It makes us the center and not God. And obviously a biblical view makes God the center. Now, the problem with accepting the biblical view is the baggage that comes with it, right? Um, that we have to do a reality check on our sinfulness, and we have to accept an accountability to our creator. And so looking at rigorously and accurately, we move from Genesis 1 to Genesis chapter 3 in the fall, and we fail to trust God, and we get too big for our britches, and there are consequences. And we never get to the end of chapter 3, um, which may be... I, it's somehow amusing to me, but at the end of chapter 3, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So there's, two, well, there's a lot of trees, but true significant trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And he says, now that they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we can't let them eat from the tree of life or we'll be stuck with them like this forever. And we don't, that's the last thing we want. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He really didn't want us to eat from the tree of life with the problem that we have before he fixed it. It's a big problem. Jeremiah 17:9. the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We can't, but we can know that it's desperately sick. Uh, Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And so culture wants us to think highly of ourselves coming from within ourselves, but doesn't want to address this because it doesn't know how. And so it sweeps it under the rug or blames it on someone else or cancels people outright. I said this in a sermon a few months ago, the more you accept the gospel and the more you accept the idea that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, uh, the, the better you are at receiving criticism because your identity isn't wrapped up in your performance, but in Christ's performance on your behalf and what God says about you. And so it's easier to receive the criticism. But I think our culture has no mechanism to receive criticism. And the gospel is what resolves this tension, obviously. Romans 5 for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that resolves that tension. The tension is what leads us to Christ. The world wants to affirm anything and sweep the bad stuff under the rug because they can't fix the tension. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible addresses the tension. It gets addressed with Christ. I'll repeat that line we repeated over the years, cheer up, you're more sinful than you ever imagined, but you're more loved than you ever dared hope. We're loved and dignified, but hopelessly broken and sinful, and he, he has solved that problem for us. I find it hard to keep that tension um, in balance because it requires this consistent dependence on the Lord. 
and even in Christ, like we're not there yet. We're in process of getting there. We're nowhere near it yet. Um, but we want to act like we're further than we are. And, and we, or at least I, tend to swing to those extremes of I'm doing really well or I stink at this, you know. And it's hard to live in this place. I was at, um, we were in Roanoke at our oldest son's visiting him and went to, to church with him. And their church was not, was, was similar to ours in style and demographics and stuff like that. We walked in. It was, it's always really interesting for me to go to another church um, and, and difficult in some ways. But, um, but we walked in and a lady started showing us around and paying attention to all these things. And she's like, hey, um, we're probably going to start like 10 minutes after we're supposed to, or maybe even 15. I'm like, I passed our church. I get it. It's okay. You know? And, uh, and, then, and then we go in, and the service is like, there's barely anybody in there when it starts, but after, you know, 10, 15 minutes, it fills up, and the way it is. And, um, and the way they did communion was a little bit more, and we've kind of moved to be a little bit more liturgical. They were coming, the guy was Anglican when he started the church, so they're coming back down, but our church is kind of like meet in the middle, and I could get more liturgical, because... The table is like the, it's the, the high point of the service is taking communion. And so they just do a little bit more with it. They read the Apostles' Creed together. And then they give them a time of confession, and then they read this confession together. And I realized during the time of confession, or maybe thinking about it afterwards, that I was resisting confession. That I didn't want to admit things that I had just been thinking about in the previous hours or days that I like really messed up on. And like, why after so long am I still messed up in some of these areas and, um, man, had this conversation a few weeks ago with some folks during the student ministry kickoff and, like, think we should be further, you know? And so I was resisting that. Um, but that's where the tension has to lead us. I've said this in the series in Romans that we're, we're made for law. We start with law. I can do it. And then we realize we can't do it, and so then we get grace. But it's kind of like we still want law. Like, Jesus did it for me. He did his part, but I'm going to do my part. And then we're like, no, that doesn't work. So Jesus did his part, and he rescued me from my sins, but now I can get my act, I'll get my act together. I'll sanctify myself. And then we realize we can't even do that. And then it becomes grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And I resist that thinking because law, thinking I can pass law makes me feel good. But like that progression down to grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, and that res resolution of the tension in that way is what really leads to humility. Like, that's humility. And, um, and realizing there's no condemnation, but there's no condemnation because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And that needs to be rehearsed, and that's why we take communion every week, is because that's where, where we need to, to be. Um, now, Paul turns in this passage from, from, from inward to outward. And he says, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And just for the record, I'm not going to go through that last section and all the gifts and stuff like that today. Um, but, I, but I am going to talk for a minute about why he does this. Because Paul's not changing the subject and moving on. Um, he's just not pointing us further inward to understand ourselves, but he's pointing us outward. He doesn't say, like, write these verses down on a three-by-five card, put them on your mirror, put them on your dashboard, memorize them, and then you'll get it all together. He tells us to understand ourselves in relation to the people around us. Um, there's a great line from, uh, from C.S. Lewis in his chapter on pride where he talks about humility, and he says, do not imagine if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed to be a cheerful, intelligent chap who took real interest in what you said and what you, were, you said to him. If you dislike him, it'll be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And I think that's gotten translated into that a truly humble person doesn't think less of himself. He thinks of himself less. 
And that once that tension is resolved in the gospel, you're free to point yourself outwards. And the body is a brilliant analogy that the, that the Bible has given us to understand who we are in relation to the people around us. And so we're all, we're a part of the same body. All my members are a part of the same body, but we're, they're not the same. But they're all part of Jeff's body, but they're not the same members within that body. Um, and it's a bit of a fool's errand to figure out which part is the most valuable part, because if you take out most of them, like the whole thing kind of falls apart, you know? Um, and so we each bring something valuable we each bring something valuable to the body, but we each need the things that other people bring to the body, too. And so there's really no reason to compare and see if we measure up and how we stack up against other parts of the body. And I, he's talking about the church, but I think you could think broader about that, and it would still work. You could think about your family. You could think about your workplace. You could think about school. Um, you could think about your neighborhood, probably, like any group of people that you consider yourself a part of. And so we're different. And those differences are good, which would seem to foster unity, that we need that, that we all have something valuable to contribute, which would lead to looking at people with dignity, and that we need each other, which would seem to foster a sense of humility that none of us could do it on our own. And I think that would be really helpful right now if we had more unity and more dignity and more humility um, towards each other in our culture. Um, you know, we're getting to enter, we're getting ready to enter into another political season. I don't know. I don't know if we can do it. <laughs> I just don't know. And, um, my personality, whenever I do these personality tests, like the whole idea of harmony is, it matters to me. I don't know. I'm the youngest in my family. My parents got divorced. I might be a bit of a peacemaker and like maybe that plays into it. Um, but a couple of years ago, I started thinking that in our political world, liberals um, generally want to liberate us from things that we need to be liberated from, and conservatives want to conserve things that ought to be conserved. And those two things should seem to get along better than they do, you know? Like, it seemed like both those things are valuable, um, but we tend to think if one party just got their way or the other, even if they just, like, that would do work better, um, but it, it doesn't. And I, I wasn't thinking about this, but there is a book by, um, God, I can't remember the guy's name, but he worked for Nixon, Reagan, Bush, and then Clinton brought him in to get a Republican voice after his tragic first year or two in the White House. And so this David Gergen, Eyewitness to Power, is the name of the book. It was a great book. And what he pointed out is that presidents always do better with an opposing Congress. Like, they're always more effective. Um, that might not have anything to do with this. But maybe it does. Maybe it does. Like, these things should foster something in us. And, that, and it does strike me that we're given this opportunity in the church. Like, this is what we're supposed to do in the church and how we're supposed to think about each other and what we're supposed to model. I, um, um, I didn't get through this book. It's so, it's, I just didn't get through it. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern South. But it's a guy named Carl Truman. He teaches at Grove City College in Pennsylvania, and the, and the premise of the book is working towards understanding the individualistic nature of our culture. He starts by saying, what I'm going to try to explain is how it came to make sense. The statement, I feel like a man trapped in a woman's body, or vice versa, came to make sense in our culture, because to our grandparents 50 years ago, that didn't make any sense. 20 years ago, it didn't make sense. And, but now it makes sense to people. And it's not, it hasn't been happening over 20 or 50 years. It's been happening over three or 500 years that we've been moving to this point. And it's a really interesting um, book. But one of the things he says is that culture, at least historically, directs the individual outward. Culture directing us inward is a new thing. So, and it, so it, it's, it is in communal activities that individuals find their true selves. The true self in traditional cultures is therefore something that is given and learned not something that the individual creates for himself. And so he goes th through like phases of this, and he goes back to like Greece and Rome and, and that we were formed by our politics and our relationship to the state. In the Middle Ages, we were formed by, our, we were religious man formed by our relationship to the church. And then economic man, it goes through the Reformation and the Renaissance, the Industrial Revolution, we're formed by what we do. And that's probably still true in a lot of ways and very true in, until about maybe 75 years ago. And now we're therapeutic or psychological man. And he goes back to Rousseau and Freud and Marx and how we understand ourselves from, from the inside. Um, 
But he said what, what it used to be, and I think what Paul's arguing in some way, I mean, we are. We, we look up and we understand ourselves, but we understand ourselves looking out as well. Uh, we learn who we are by learning how to conform ourselves to the purposes of the larger community to which we belong. So the ancient Athenian was committed to the assembly, the medieval Christian to his church, the 20th century factory worker to his trade union and working man's club. All of them found their purpose and well-being by being committed to something outside themselves. In the world of psychological man, however, the commitment is first and foremost to the self, and it's inwardly directed. Outward institutions become, in effect, the servants of the individual and his or her sense of inner well-being. And he says, I thought this was pretty interesting, institutions cease to be places for the formation of individuals via their, via their schooling and various practices and disciplines that allow them to take their place in society. Instead, institutions become platforms for performance where individuals are allowed to be their authentic selves precisely because they're able to give expression to who they are inside. Um, and so now, I think that's kind of how we're generally like, that's the, that's the air we breathe, um, that we don't need to be shaped by anything from the outside because we have everything we need on the inside. And that seems like kind of an arrogant view. And Paul is turning it around and turning us outward. Um, and I think that's what Jesus did too in, in one example of that when he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I think that would be like a way of saying we try and figure all this stuff out. We're trying to save our lives. But he's like, if you give your life away, then you're going to find it. And the only way you really do that is trusting him, that he's smarter than you and that he's got things in control and everything we learn in Romans 1 through 8 and all that the gospel says is true about him and true about us and the love that he has for us and our security in him. Um, I was probably, I don't know, six months ago maybe, it hit me that my kids are getting older, so two are gone. Abigail is soon leaving me. Uh, Johnny will leave me after that. And, um, but I, they don't need me anymore. Like, they don't need me to take care of them the way that... I thought yesterday about um, 10 years ago, my kids were, what, 10, 9, 7, and 5. And I needed a drink. It was like, I just was like, holy cow, how do we make it through that? Um... But now they don't, but now my parents do. And so my, um, my dad is 80, my mom turned 77 today. I think she's tuning in. Everybody say, happy birthday, Judy. Happy birthday, Judy. There you go. She gets to have a knee replacement tomorrow. There's the birthday present. <laughs> um, uh, but they need me more. And there was a moment where I was like, God, can we just not catch a break, get a rest? And then I thought, that's not what you're made for. Like, what if God wired this thing so that, so that not everybody, but most, you know, a lot of people are going to have kids, and you're going to give your life away to them, but then it's going to turn, and you're going to give your life to the people who gave their life to you. And, like, you're made to give your life away, and you're not made to, you don't deserve a break today. Like, you're, what you do need is Sabbath. Like, he worked that in, right? But we don't do that, like, the way he told us to. We do it the way we want to do which is that everything is a break. I think about my kids um, that are entering into their 20s, and I've tried to subtly coach them into this for, for years because not everybody's going to be married. Paul says it's good if you could remain single, but not many people are, are wired to do that. And some people are wired, they're not wired to do that, but they're doing that anyway. And I understand uh, caveating all that. A lot of people are going to get married. But the average marriage age has gone up, and the birth rate has gone down, so we're getting married later and having fewer kids. And when you just listen to people talk about that, a lot of it is, so I get to do whatever I want to, whenever I want to do it. There's freedom to it. And on paper, kids are, kids are like, not a great decision. Super expensive, take a lot of time, will drive you crazy at times. But there's nothing better. I mean, I just, it's, they're great. I love, you know, you've listened to me forever, at all, like, love them to death. Literally, and um, um, but I've I've kind of coached them like, hey, you don't need to. You might not need to find yourself in your twenties, like maybe you find yourself in terms of commitment. And so, if you're the right person and you're ready, you meet the right person, then don't hesitate to get married on the earlier side of what people are doing now, because maybe we're made to give ourselves away. Um, 
And then this line in this passage, we, though many, are one body in Christ. He's talking about the church and individually members one of another. Like, this kind of hit me midweek, and I'm like, I don't know what that means. I don't, like, at the depth, I don't understand that at the depth that I ought to. We, individual, we are individually members one of another. Like, that's us, the church. We're members one of another. And I think that's harder and harder in an individual society, in a busy society, in an age where all of, a lot of us are just super busy. But I think we're missing out on something. So, um, so let me, I'm almost done here. Um, I, I, I linked another thing on the weekly, and it was the podcast called The Holy Post. And a couple, maybe a month and a half ago, they were talking about and it was only like from minute 30 to minute 55 in that podcast is what I really would love for you to listen to. Because they, they started talking about a, a book that someone wrote about why people, why church attendance is in decline. And how some of that has to do with church leadership failures and people lack of trust in the church. But not all of it. It says a much larger share of those who have left church have done so, so for more banal reasons. And they don't use words like banal a whole lot. So don't like, eh. um, The book suggests that the defining problem driving out most people who leave is just how American life works in the 21st century. Contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it's designed to maximize individual accomplishment as designed by professional and financial success. Such systems leave precarious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's professional life or, as one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. Workism reigns in America, and because of it, community in America, religious community included, is a math problem that doesn't add up. And they talk about that most people, they don't leave because some event happened. They leave gradually. You know, and COVID is part of that. Like, you just get out of that habit, and then it's harder to get in because they find that it's easier to skip than to attend. And said it's challenging for many people in their lives. They're stretched like a rubber band that's about to snap, and church attendance ends up feeling like an item on a checklist that's already too long, so they prioritize everything else, and adding church into that is too much. And I, I don't say that in a pejorative, like, judgmental way. Like, I get that, you know? Um, but they say um, how they... Well, let me get through. I would say it's more than church attendance. More important than church attendance is the priority of being the church and being involved in each other's lives, of being members one of another um, so that people are in that with you and pouring out our lives for each other because that's what we're made for. And they continue in this. One guy, and I think it's Phil Vischer, who's the VeggieTales guy, um, who ended up thinking that VeggieTales was just a big morality play and what didn't have much to do with the gospel. They're still great, though. Um, I think it's him who says this. In many churches I've been a part of, the message we hear is not one of the beauty of life of commitment, life and commitment to others. What we hear is how great it's going to be when you help us advance this institution. So if you volunteer in this way or if you give your money here or you give up your free time to come do this, it'll grow our church or grow the mission or whatever. And after a while, you realize... <laughs> So he says, I think these guys are using me. I don't think they really love me. Um, I think they want to use me. And on top of that, the things that we're called to our vocations and relationships in the world are never validated or blessed. It's just, what are you doing for the 501c3? That was really convicting. And, uh, like, I feel the tension of that um, because this is an organization that you have to run and, like, you know, you need... You need volunteers, but like we're but we're made we're made for it. We're made to serve each other in these ways and to serve each other's families and to serve each other's children. And to... so he ends up saying the bar that needs to be raised is not the institutional bar, it's the communal bar and acknowledging their sacrifice. There's sacrifice there, but there's blessing in the commitment to those relationships. And really that talks that's getting into vision. Um, for church. One guy ends up saying after that, like, the goal of the church isn't impact, it's faithfulness. And so we exist to manifest the fruits of the Spirit of God, and God will use that however he may. And having conversations with a lot of you over the last few years, I feel like that's what you're, 
what, what you're hungry for and what you sense is wanting to be a part of that, a place where we're members one of another and that there's a commitment to each other that's in the name of the Lord and the Lord's going to do with that what the Lord wants to do with that. Um, I don't know how that um, speaks to you. The band can can come back up here. It, like I said, it. Um, I've said this. I've said this a few times over the last few years. Oak City Church, in ways, has been just a dream come true. Um, and not all our wildest dreams come true. In a few seasons, a nightmare. If just being totally honest. But if I can sit on the dream come true, um, it's it's in large part. Because this is, this is a joy, this is a joy. Um, serving with people in this way is a joy. Seeing, knowing what God is doing in people's lives and how God has impacted people's lives um, is a joy. Knowing some people now, 17 years of a church, but a few years even before that, and knowing I'll never know better people in my life. Um, and it's not because we've been together for years. We've just gotten to know each other over that period of time, and it's been a joy. And I get the tension of, um, man, it's so busy. Like, and I don't, I don't know that we've done that great. Um, but my prayer is that we get the joy of what God offers us in the relationships that we have in Christ. Um, and I think our world is desperate for that, for like a different picture of things, um, for a settledness in who we are, for a resolution of that tension uh, that only comes in the gospel, and for a community of people that are members one of another and can have unity even though they're different and can express dignity towards each other and can just live out a picture of humility. Um, and that'd be my prayer for where he takes our church. <laughs>